0: Section 9 of The History Teacher's Magazine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History Teacher's Magazine, Volume 1, Number 1, September 1909. Section 9. English History in the Secondary School. C. B. Newton, editor one, through the norman conquest i have just finished reading a centurion of the thirteenth on the great wall and the winged hats all from kipling's puck of pook's hill and now feel in the proper frame of mind to begin the year's work in english history By the proper frame of mind, I mean that what I know, and what I would fain have my class know, is illuminated and enlivened by a sense of reality, without which my teaching and their learning would be as sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. The fundamental importance of beginning with this proper frame of mind is the first matter which I wish to emphasize, the starting point of the many matters which we may profitably consider together in our monthly discussions for ponder the magnitude of the task before us as we return from our vacation in this very modern world of ours to our very modern pupils how shall we be true interpreters of the life of an early day so remote so utterly removed so unreal unless we can by some magic touch invest it all with reality it is a solemn thing fellow workmen in this noble field of english history to think how many thousands of us shall endeavour during the next few weeks to impart some knowledge some realising sense of prehistoric man's dwelling in the so different albion which was the mother of england of celt and roman and saxon and dane of imperial caesar landing on the unknown barbarous coasts of britain of druids and of monks and so on through those long mysterious thousand years which bring us to somewhat clearer day through still remote enough for every exercise of the imagination when the great duke became the last conqueror of the little island a solemn thing i say for if we fail to illumine this mass of material with any ray of the imagination if we merely cram facts and theories into the miserable minds of our victims until they are stuffed with names and dates then are we become blind leaders of the blind of whom it may be said as i once heard it said of a professor in one of our great colleges think of the hundreds for whom he has ruined history so i believe in all seriousness it shall profit us more to take down our kipling or to call out some of the very human episodes from our green or from dr warren's little book of selections and to saturate our minds therein insulating them as it were from the quick currents of the present than to refresh our memories laboriously and conscientiously from sources and authorities until we are merely primed with facts need i say that this is no slur nor sneer at authorities and sources of course we have not neglected these we must not and we shall not neglect them my emphasis is simply on what is too often neglected my plea is for setting free the imagination for letting the magic work which will help us to clothe the dry bones of fact with the flesh of life we have all been taught to be conscientious and faithful and painstaking That is the modern historian's creed. But all conscious and no imagination make a mighty dull teacher. Let us never forget that. Sincerity and Frankness Indispensable If the imagination needs all the arousing and vivifying it can get in dealing with the early Britons and Romans, of whom we receive vivid impressions in Puck of Pugs Hill, How much more must it cry for help in beginning as most textbooks of english history do with primitive man i must confess i dread those opening lessons which deal with the origins of things paleolithic neolithic metal age how glibly the names may be reeled off but what do we really know about them and who are we to try to penetrate the seclusion of the unfathomed ages i confess my imagination gropes blindly here and i must simply admit that i am baffled that here i can summon a very little sense of reality this should be made clear enough to the class both that our sources of knowledge are limited and that the backward and abysm of time baffles the staunchest traveller to the far past our pupils will value our sincerity from the outset if we make it plain that there is no humbug about us that we are not pretending to a knowledge which their quick intelligence tells them must in the nature of things be very limited don't let us be too cocksure about anything still less about prehistoric times for be sure the youthful mind if it is worth anything asks itself how they know so much when by our own admission there is no written records you will permanently undermine confidence if you make a false start here so it appears to me that all the period before the romans came should be clothed in a haze of mystery a few looming facts in the gloom but nothing too clear cut or definite so too throughout the course let us be frank in acknowledging the many uncertainties which beset us so setting in an invaluable example of sincerity and unconsciously inducing a spirit of honesty in the attitude of our pupils toward history as to dates and discipline with the landing of julius caesar the fog begins to lift and certain clear headlands of knowledge appear this may be brought out very sharply by reading to the class or getting the class to read to you an extract or two from de bello gallico say chapter eight of book five or a chapter from the end of book four this brings home to the class the barbarianness of the britons in contrast with civilized rome and incidentally gives the average pupil a new and almost startling view of caesar this done the next task is to prevent the class from unanimously jumping at the conclusion that caesar began the roman conquest the only thing to do is to hammer in the four conquests or invasions with their dates as landmarks and to try heroically to get straight the difference between celt and roman and teuton No imagination here, but the sterner side of the year's work, the absolute definite learning by rote of the essential dates and facts, which must in no wise be slurred or passed by. I do not believe history to be a disciplinary study, but there is plenty of discipline in it, as there is in all substantial work and the boy or girl who has perhaps had only some smatterings of elementary history before might as well realize in the beginning that entering this large field of english history means not only large opportunities for the imagination and for abounding intellectual interest but means also real work for the memory and for the understanding how to bring this about against the inertia inaccuracy, and inefficiency of the class there is no royal road patience reiteration insistence on accuracy and finally where necessary the rod or whatever substitute our american delicacy along punitive lines allows are the only methods open to us a good means of reiteration in the matter of dates is to have one pupil put a set of dates on the board each day for example the dates of the invasions marking the approximate dates with a plus or minus sign and at such landmarks as the landing of Augustine, the Treaty of Wedmore, etc., may well be put on the board every day while the class is studying the period before the Normans. The same thing may well be done during each dynasty, keeping the dates of that dynasty before the class without spending much time on them. The recitation of the class should not, of course, be halted while the dates are being written. A glance will serve to correct them when they are done." Concerning Maps and Notebooks A word in regard to map work and notebooks. The correlation of geography with history is, of course, indispensable. In certain places throughout our subject, which I shall point out from time to time, it is necessary that the geography of England and of Europe should be clearly in mind. During this early period, these notable points are number 1. The probable geographical conditions before the channel was cut. Number two, the divisions of Great Britain and Ireland at the time of Roman occupation, showing the great walls and the Roman roads. Number three, the Saxon period, the homes of the Saxons and the Heptarchy. Number four, the Dane law and the Alfred's kingdom. Number five, locations of battles and other points of historical interest such as the holy isle of st columba wedmore etc through 1066 i know no better way to make these five or more topics clear than by outline maps in using outline maps neatness and cleanness are the two points to emphasize unless your textbook has good maps your pupils should get gardener's school atlas of english history Longmans, green and company as to notebooks i believe they are very helpful in teaching english history but do not overdo their use if we insist on their being very elaborate we make a fetish of them they have two very simple uses a to emphasize important matters in each lesson b to contain any points outside the textbook which the teacher gives the class Also, their by-products of concentration and accuracy and practice for college work are by no means to be despised. At the beginning, when a pupil is possibly taking notes for the first time, we must be very patient, speaking slowly and practically dictating the things to be put down. As a rule, I would not put facts on the board to be copied. That is too easy. A class must learn to take notes from the voice and gradually to catch matters worth setting down without special direction. Reference Books Two very useful books to which constant reference will be made during the coming months are Beard's Introduction to English Historians, Macmillan, and Cheney's Reading in English History, Gin and Company both of these volumes give well selected quotations from many sources inaccessible to many of us and with one or both of them in our possession we shall be tolerably well equipped for the year's work then there are two old standards which most of us possess or may easily get at first of all in my opinion is green's short history of the english people harper's one volume edition and second gardiner's students history of england Longman Screen and Company is not only a good one volume history, but is particularly rich in pictures of value and interest. In explaining the missionary efforts of the Irish Church, the fascinating career of Saint Patrick should not be neglected. See Ireland in the Stories of the Nations series by Lothless, Chapter 4. Anglo Saxon government is an important subject. Gardner has a good brief explanation of terms page twenty nine through thirty three and seventy two through seventy five of the student's history. Beard and Cheney may be read quickly and with helpful results on this subject. Alfred the Great, the noblest figure, shall we not say in all English history, certainly in this period, should be sympathetically studied. Of course, Green paints him vividly, pages forty eight through fifty two but if possible, get Walter Besant's Story of King Alfred in the Library of Useful Stories, D. Appleton and Company. The Colossus of the 10th century was Dustin. Some textbooks slight him. See Green, pages 55-58, for his remarkable many-sidedness. Of course, Freeman's Norman Conquest is full of meat on this period before the Normans, as well as on the Normans themselves. A judicious use of the index will make these volumes of Freeman very useful, if you have time for the search. The rise of Normandy and the wonderful career of Duke William should, of course, be made sunlight clear. End of section 9